Well, good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to be spending an extensive amount of time this morning in the book of Psalms. If you would, go ahead and just open up to the very first chapter. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, I want to take a moment to say welcome, uh, especially those who are visiting with us. We hope you know you're an honored guest, and we, we appreciate your, your attendance, and especially to our members. It's so good to see you all. If you were here last Sunday, you would know that I was not. Uh, I'm very thankful for Eric and for, for Richard for filling in for me while I was gone, and been able to listen to their sermons, and they did an excellent job, and I, I appreciate that so much, the, uh, the help that they've given me. Um, as I've told some of you on Wednesday night, uh, we had a very um, exciting trip to Pike County, and uh, it was profitable, but it wasn't home, and we are so thankful to be back here with you all, to be back here and worship the, the Lord our God together. And being back here, it makes me happy. It, it, being in the, with this family makes me happy. And that is, as Logan said, what I want to speak about this morning. You know, throughout life, this question has been asked, what is the key to true happiness? This has been searched, the, the answer for this question has been searched throughout history. And we hear some people who have said, well, it's found in the state of mind. You know, the, this idea of, of a, a zen-like quality that if you can just get your mind there, then you can finally unlock the potential of, of true happiness. Other people say, well, it's found in material things. Uh, true happiness is found in abundance, or it's found in, in the pleasures of the flesh. And it's no surprise today that many people seek, they strive for happiness, but not many people find it. When we look around us and we see that we live in a time that is filled with boredom, depression, and other forms of general unhappiness. We are engulfed in this, if you will. So it leads us to ask this question, is there some basic principle? Is there something that would determine success in finding happiness? And I think that's uh, where the book of Psalms can be very profitable for us, especially in this very first psalm. It shares with us a key principle to unlocking true happiness. And in fact, if you'll notice in the very first word of the very first book of Psalms, the word blessed, blessed. This word in the Hebrew, it denotes the idea of happiness. So in, in actuality, it could be translated Instead of blessed is the man, it can be translated, oh, how very happy is the man. And that's why the, the first psalm is a psalm that tells us how to have a truly happy life, how to be a truly happy man. So in this lesson, I hope to, to take a little bit closer look at this psalm and, and to understand it a little better and to apply the, the principles... Who, that are found therein, apply them to our lives so that we can live a life that is more blessed. We can live a life of greater happiness. Now the psalm itself is divided into, into three sections just naturally as we read through it. The first section goes into the blessedness of the righteous man. In verses 1 and 2 we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In these first verses we see two contrasting views. First we are told of his character, 
But we're told of his character in a negative light, coming from kind of a negative point of view. These are sometimes called negative commands. Negative commands or statements are statements are commands or statements that, that protect us. They, they show us uh, the way to keep from going astray. And they protect us from harm and misery. A negative command is kind of like a fence. A fence that is guarding the edge of maybe a cliff or some danger. And, and helps us to stay off uh, and stay away from that danger. So as we go back through and see this, we can see that these, this first verse is filled with these negative commands. The first one we see is, is that he is someone who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This carries with it the idea that he doesn't take counsel um, on how to live from the ungodly. Now, some have read this verse and said, well, this means that someone may be suffering with depression. They, they should only talk to other Christians. And that's not the, that's not the idea that is carried through here. Uh, it, it's not carrying this idea that we should never go to someone who is not a Christian and ask them for their help or ask them for advice on something. But when we look at it from the idea of happiness, of blessedness, and of righteousness, don't try to get advice on how to be happy from someone who doesn't truly know how to be happy. We look around at people who are saying, well, my happiness comes from the 15 cars I have in my garage. Don't go to that person because all you're ever going to get from that is disappointment because you're not going to have 15 cars in your garage. The, the, the point from this passage is there's a standard that we can get our happiness from and it's not in the ungodly. So we are not to follow the advice of those who are sinful. The next passage says that he also does not stand in the path of sinners. Again, this is uh, with the idea of, of not, not lingering not lingering where, where sinners are. Now, you might be very tempted to see, okay, well, sinners are, well, they're found in bars. I've seen sinners there before, or maybe in, in various clubs, and I'm just going to stay far away from those things, and I can do this. This is a, a fairly easy one, not staying in the path of sinners. But I want to suggest to you that it goes a little farther than just simply staying away from these hotbeds of sin, if you will, but even those people that you associate with, people that have influence in your life. Are you taking a stand with people who stand for things that are sinful? It might even be friends and family. And the truly blessed person doesn't stand with sinners. We need to make sure that we, that we apply that to our life for a certain reason. The fact is, if you are going to stand with sinners, the temptation is great that you will eventually follow with sinners. And that's why it's so important on where we take our stands. And that leads us to the next ver- uh, part of this verse. Nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. This idea kind of here is, is of someone who's joined himself with sinners and, and joined himself to the point that they are scorning other people. They are mocking and ridiculing people who try to do right. Now, this is often seen by people who are trying to fortify their own conduct, to, to explain why they do in their own mind, why they do the things they do, they will make fun of people that they see as doing things that are silly, things that, that, that are right in the Lord's eyes, but they just are unco- made uncomfortable by. In this, in this verse, verse, there's something that is very important in understanding Hebrewic literature. Hebrews loved to or the Hebrew literature loves to use the usage of rhyming. Now, did you hear the rhyme in that passage? When we go back through and look at it, you're not going to find very many words that rhyme. That doesn't rhyme at all. But in fact, it does. It rhymes a lot. Hebrews didn't uh, use the idea of word rhyming. They used thought rhyming. Thoughts that strung together that related to one another more than just words. 
This was often used in a form called parallelism. If you will, just for a moment, notice verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This rhymes with verse 6. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteousness. Why is his, is his delight in the law of the Lord? Because the Lord knows the way of righteousness. The rhyme there is, these, is, is what, how these two relate. Now that's called parallelism. In verse 1 we see a form of parallelism called progressive parallelism. Look again at verse 1 real quick. The blessed man is one who walks not, nor stands, nor sits. Do you see the, the parallelism that, that's, uh, that's, that we see there? It's this idea that things are progressively getting worse in, in the idea of, uh, of sin. <clears throat> we find here that first one would go along with the crowd. He would walk with the sinful. But walking soon becomes not enough. Then he takes a stand with the crowd siding with them, and finally, reaching a point where the sin is no longer enough, he begins to mock those who do righteous. The progressiveness in these passages, to walk, stand, and then sit, is a form of Hebrew literature that, that describes their, their dedication to stay away from this sin. They won't even take that first step. We sing a song sometimes, only a step, and we look at it in context of it's only a step, towards eternity with Christ. That first step, to, to take that step to come forward, to take that step and to confess and to be baptized. But the message here also is that it's only a step towards sin. Don't take that first step towards sin. Don't even walk. Definitely don't stand and certainly don't sit in, in the presence of sin. The next thing we are seeing uh, from these passages is that now we have a positive perspective for the, uh, for the one who is truly happy. In verse 2 it says that he, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The source of his joy, the source of his happiness is from the word of God. And it is truly his delight. Flip over, holding your finger here, but flip over to Psalms 19. Psalm 19, the longest psalm, well the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, also the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Psalms 19, and look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now scroll down to verse 24. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 35. Make me walk in the paths of your commandment, for I delight in it. Verse 47. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, but their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Verse 77, let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 92, unless your law has been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And then verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. You see how much delight... He can't stop talking about it. It is all that he talks about in, the, in, in, in so many verses. He, he is just proclaiming that the, the source of my happiness, the source of my delight is in your law, is in the word of God. He preferred it, as we saw earlier, over the counsel of the ungodly. Again, with the, with the parallelism there. In the next part, he says, Therefore, in his law, he will meditate both day and night. 
The word meditate here, it means to, to hum or utter, moan, speak, muse. The picture is one of a man who is reading and rereading aloud to himself the Word of God. Another, one, another word that we might maybe more commonly today put in there is to ponder over something. And this is something that he did both day and night. It was implying not a monk-like existence where, where someone would never leave a room and they would just spend themselves uh, 24-7 in, in, engulfed in the Word of God, but rather it was someone that had a true interest that went beyond just a, a casual acquaintance with the Word of God. They had a true desire and interest to, to study in the Word of God, which means that it was something of a habit. It was something that he did habitually, and it was something that he took the time to do. In fact, setting aside time of the day and doing so both day and night. I had a friend who, who made it his goal to make sure that he read from his Bible every day. And he did really good at that until he got into college, and he started struggling with that. And he told me there was times when he would, he would be setting up at a 11 o'clock, 11.30, almost midnight, and, and realize I hadn't studied my Bible today. He said, but you wouldn't believe the comfort I got from closing my book and opening my Bible for five minutes. The, the last five minutes of the day sometimes, just the little bit of time that he would immerse himself in his Bible was just giving him so much comfort even as he was going through these finals at school. And that should say something to us. That should, that should remind us how much God's Word really can mean to us. You know, I appreciate the songs that Logan led, The Law of the Lord. That's such a, a uh, Psalms 19 is such a wonderful psalm to remind us how important God's Word is. And for us to be truly happy, we do have to delight in that law, or in, in that Word. And we do have to meditate upon it day and night. And the next thing we see here is in verse 3. Again, talking still about the blessedness of the righteousness, we see that, that we are told of His prosperity. In verse uh, 3, we see that He shall be like a tree. This figure of speech is, is used several times in the Scriptures to describe one who is righteous. And you think about it to, to those that lived in that, in that climate, uh, uh, like the places around Palestine. A tree was, was something that would represent strength, that would represent solidity. When you look around at all the other vegetation that you could be described as, a tree has a lot uh, that leaves little to uh, lacking, has a lot to be desired. And we read that it is planted by rivers of water. So now we have a picture here describing a person whose life, like a tree, strong, but is rooted in God's Word. And, and root, rooted in so that it receives constant nourishment through the Word of God. And then it says that it brings forth fruit in its season. This depicts yet a life which yields not only for itself, but yields for others something that is worthwhile. Something that is, that is beneficial to others and to itself also. And then it says, whose leaf shall, or also shall not wither. <clears throat> a tree that is planted by a river. A tree is going to be in pretty good shape when a drought comes in. When the rain doesn't fall, the river, the, the river flowing beside it is going to provide that nourishment still. Even when the rain is not falling and things farther away from the river are dying, they're, they're, they're running out of water, this tree is still going to be strong because it is planted in such an a opportune place to receive that constant nourishment. 
So adverse conditions aren't going to affect the fruitfulness of one whose strength comes from the Word of God. That's the passage, or that's the, the message that we can take from this passage. That if we will not walk in the in the ways of sinners and not sit in the seat of the scornful, if we will delight in the law of the Lord, if we will meditate on His law day and night, we can have happiness because we are fully nourished. We are planted strong by a river that is ever flowing and that is always providing us what we need even when times of drought, when times of, of, uh, of, of adverse conditions come along. Excuse me. And so then the next thing we see is whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does shall prosper. All of a sudden we leave this, this description of a tree behind and now we are focusing back on a, on a figure of a human. Whatever he does shall prosper. And this is a general rule. We need to make sure we understand that. This is a generality. But, and exceptions may occur for reasons that we may not know. But a life of devotion to God, a life that is devoted to His law, to His word, is generally a life that will be blessed with prosperity. Now, I'm not here this morning to preach to you a gospel of, of abundance, a gospel of wealth, and, and, and there are going to be times that are hard. But one who devotes his life to God and devotes his life to his law is one who, who will heed God's directions on, on how to live a blessed life and how to be successful in life. And a one who is devoted to God will also heed God's warnings on things that will waste one's life. So such is the character and prosperity of a righteous man. We can see that he truly is happy, and he is not only a blessing to himself, but he is a blessing to those around him because he abides in the word of God. But he also is a monument of God's faithfulness and through the value of living by his word. Not only do we need to recognize if we will do these things, not only will we live a blessed life, but we will show others. We will stand out as that monument. And look, you want to ask me why my life is so good? It's because I've put my faith, my trust in God. I've followed His Word. So what of those who do not delight in the Lord? Do not delight in the Word of God. Who do not receive nourishment found in it. In the next two verses, we are shown the condition of the unrighteousness. In verse, in verse 4, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. This phrase, <clears throat> uh, the ungodly are not so, it tells us that they are nothing like the righteousness. In, uh, in fact, it literally is like it's saying, not so are the ungodly. If we read it in that light, um, blessed is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the path of sinners, nor sets in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, uh, whose leaf also shall not wither, and what he does shall prosper. Not so are the ungodly. That's really what he's saying there. The ungodly, you're going to be the opposite of this emphasizing that the wicked are not like the righteous whatsoever. Any contrast is illustrated here to, by the psalmist. Notice, though, that when he was talking about the righteous, he compared him to a tree, a tree that won't wither. So you would think, logically, he would compare the unrighteous to a withering tree. But that's not what he does. He compares them to chaff, 
to the chaff that, is, that the wind drives away. Matthew 3, verse 12 says this chaff is sometimes gathered together and burned in an unquenchable fire. Now me, living in the life that I lived, I had absolutely no idea what chaff was. I had to look that up. And chaff, for those of you that might be uh, uh, along with me, not having an idea, chaff at this time, it can come from wheat, it can come from corn, but it is basically the particles that are caught up in the wind whenever they would thresh it, when they would take piles of wheat and they would thresh it and some of the wind would catch these little particles of nothingness and blow them away. That's what he's uh, describing the, the unrighteous as. Not a tree, not even a dying tree. They're nothingness. They're, they're the chaff that the wind blows away. And the, the illustration here is meant to describe a very bleak existence. Their life is one of futility, ultimately ending with eternal separation from God. Their life is one that has substantially no value, either to be blown away or, as I said in Matthew 3, to be burned up. And it says their condition is a quite a sorry one. In fact, it has no good end. It says the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Now understand again, this is, this is Hebrewic language. That idea of stand there, it, it carries with it the idea that the wicked, they won't be able to maintain themselves. In our day and age, we might say that they, they can't hold their head high. They will have their head bowed down because they know they are guilty. Uh, in fact, it, some tra- uh, commentaries I read said they would be obliged to sit or to fall down in shame when they are convicted. And this seems to be, appears to be considering the final judgment of man. So likewise, then the next verse, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, again tells us that in all places where the righteous are assembled, Sinners won't have a place. We can understand that uh, even on a, on a physical level here on this earth. In the church, we see where, where, where those that are righteous are assembled to worship God. Where they are assembled to meet as God's friends, as His friends. And where they together together to participate in His favor. Sinners will feel out of place. It was meant for that. It wasn't meant to be a place that was all welcoming and accepting. It was meant to be a place that would spur one to look at their life and see why why do I have this feeling of separation here? But especially, as was just previously discussed in the last days, when the righteous are gathered together to receive their reward, when the righteous are assembled together in heaven, the sinner does not have a place with them there. The psalm concerning the truly happy man ends with a final contrast between the two ways. In verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, it says, uh, speaking of the way of righteousness, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. We need to focus in on that word knows. It suggests that the Lord is interested in. The Lord cares for the person who is known here. The person who is righteous. One could say that God Himself goes with such a person throughout His or her life. He has care for those who are righteous, but the way of the ungodly, this way shall perish. In fact, this way shall lend itself towards ruin. His path will become less and less defined until ultimately it loses itself and he himself is lost. A friend of mine um, several years ago hiked a portion of the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is a trail that runs north to south along the eastern seaboard, and it's, it's a long, it takes several months to hike the whole thing. He just 
was hiking it in portions to say he had done all of it. And he was up near the northern part where the, the trail goes up into the mountains such, in such a high point that it goes above tree lines. So you have a line where the trees don't grow anymore. And he said, as the trail got up in this area and there's no more trees and the vegetation is, is sparse and there's just a lot of rock, he said, it's hard to find the trail. The trail itself diminished and diminished until it was only marked with a couple rocks here and there. Uh, and you would look out as far as you can and you might see a few more mar- rocks that have been set up as markers. He said it was so hard to follow that trail as the trail slowly vanished away. That is what is saying here about the ungodly. The path that they are on becomes so bleak, becomes so less defined and is so diminished that eventually they are just nothing more than simply lost. Lost in in their own unrighteousness. Is it not the end that is described of the ungodly. Is this not a true description to many today who go through life suffering from from boredom and depression and and, and just general unhappiness? They live their lives and they they realize they're listless. What have I to offer about myself? Nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares who I am. I have no sense of purpose. What is my direction in life? gradually as a life just slowly unravels. Now I think it's important here in closing to, to make clear that depression that I'm talking about in this, in, in this lesson is not a depression that, that we sometimes ignore. It's not a depression that can happen through in chemical imbalances in the brain. It's a depression that someone who is striving for happiness and just can't even begin to figure out where to look. We're not saying that if someone who, who suffers from depression should just ignore all other, uh, all other avenues of support and, and simply just hope that the chemicals in their brains will wind themselves out. We're saying, uh, excuse me, I'm saying that God's Word needs to be the underlying, most important aspect of any regime that we use to get ourselves out of depression to get ourselves into a happy life. Because if we truly desire to, be, to, to live a happy life, if we truly desire to be a truly happy man, we have to stand strong. We have to be well-nourished. We have to be a tree that bears fruit for others because of the nourishment it receives from God. And we have to know that we have the Lord always at our side. We have to know that we're not a listless person. We're not someone that no one cares about and no one knows our name. We're someone that if we will be obedient to the Lord, if we will be righteous, as he describes, someone who will meditate on his word, someone who will love his law, that he will be someone that cares for us. He will be there to watch out for us. The key to a happy life is delight and meditation on the word of the Lord. So my question to you this morning is, whose counsel do you take delight in? If you're seeking to have a happy life, which I imagine all of us are, nobody truly seeks after an unhappy life. Whose counsel do you delight in today? Do you delight in the counsel found in God's Word? Do you delight in the counsel found in in the, the message that He has left for us? Or do you delight in the counsel that is found in the world, in the ungodly? 
If you seek true happiness, then, then I pray today you will let the Lord be your counselor. You will let the Lord be your guide to, to this life of happiness. And it all starts, as we've been talking about this morning, with faith. It all truly starts with faith, but it starts with the right kind of faith. It starts with the, the, the kind of faith that will let your shield down, that will put down your guard to say, yes, there are things in this life that are hard, and there are things in this life that I don't understand, but I know God does. And I know He understands me, and I know He loves me, and I know He wants me to be obedient and to come to Him and to be with Him for eternity. He doesn't desire for any of us to perish in, in, in hell. So it begins with following the counsel found in His Word. Counsel that tells us to not only believe in Him, but to obey to be obedient to Him, to repent of the sins that are in our life, to confess that Jesus was the Son of God, that He came to this earth and He died, but He was resurrected. And He was resurrected so that we might have forgiveness of our sins, to be baptized, to, to bury ourselves as He was buried, bury ourselves in the water where we come in contact with that blood, the only place that we can truly receive that forgiveness. And as we raise anew to commit our lives steadfastly, it sounds scary. It sounds hard. The steps are easy, but the commitment sounds hard. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we can be truly happy knowing that even in the hardest times, our roots are planted firmly by the river of life, the Word of God. So if it be your desire this morning to give yourself to Christ, or if you have done so already and maybe... Maybe you have been seeking counsel in the world. Maybe you have forgotten where that true happiness comes from and, and you realize that you need to make things right. You need to bring yourself back to God. Please come forward now as we stand and sing.